0: Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, June 3rd, we're studying Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 21. When some members of the church insist that Gentiles must be circumcised in order to be Christian, the church meets together in Jerusalem to discuss and decide the matter on the basis of God's word. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Steve Andrews. Pastor Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lees Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, welcome back to Sharp Iron.
1: Thank you, brother. It's always such an honor to be invited to talk about God's Word. It is such a joy
0: to get to talk to pastors about God's word every day. This is fantastic. So, Pastor Andrews, we get to talk about Acts 15 today. Paul takes a break from his journey for a little bit here. Tell us the context of what's often called the Jerusalem Council. What's the context we should know?
1: The context for the council really is very much connected to what's just happened in Paul's life. As Paul and Barnabas were out and about on their first missionary journey, which was primarily up through Syria into Asia Minor, they're, they're sharing the gospel, they're going to synagogues, they're teaching both Jews but also God-fearing Gentiles, uh, the phrase used of those uh, Gentiles who have taken to understanding and reading the Old Testament and putting their trust in Yahweh. Paul goes there to, to use that Old Testament scripture and show them Christ. And as he's been doing that on the, the journey, there were certain Jews who started to oppose Paul and Barnabas, and I don't know that they're all of the same class. Um, some of them we might simply call uh, Jews, even today, that opposed Christ and everything about Him, and so they dis- they despised Paul for this. And there might be others, though, that were actually what we would consider to be Christians that were just struggling to give up the law, and so there's these groups that chase Paul from one city to the next. Um, sometimes. They simply oppose his teachings, but other times it gets worse. Uh, they in Lystra, for example, on that first journey, they tried to stone him. They thought they had stoned him to death, and then you get to other times where Paul simply has left a place, and then this group of Jews comes in behind him and starts teaching the Christians that they have to do they have to do all these other things too. Uh, one of those, it's not just Jesus; it's Jesus and this other thing. And so paul and barnabas at the end of their journey come back to antioch and they're in the same situation sharing what they've done on that missionary journey and the the joy of the gentiles who have come to know christ through the the preached gospel and they're opposed again and so it's the antioch brethren who end up sending a delegation back to jerusalem which is the center of and the the head of the the church here on earth at the time that this this council would be formed come together, and give an answer to the question what about circumcision must we be circumcised or is there is Jesus enough hmm.
0: yeah so and and this is I mean I appreciate the context of Paul's first missionary journey in which he traveled as you said through Asia Minor now he's back in Syria and Antioch and he's faced opposition along the way and people have followed him here. The opposition is going to come from a different direction. It's coming from Judea. So, and it's going to, we'll read this. They came down from Judea because it, you always come down from the, the elevation, even though they're, they're actually traveling North from Judea to Antioch, they're coming down. So it is from a different direction. And we, and and we'll read the text in just a moment. As a reminder, this has, this controversy has come up briefly in the book of Acts before, After Peter had gone to Cornelius' house and the Gentiles heard the gospel there, there were some, as it said in in Acts 11 verse 2... When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. That, that reference to the circumcision party or the those who are of the circumcision is, is the most literal way to take the Greek there. This same group has, has been around, and now the controversy rears its head a little bit more and is going to be dealt with in Acts chapter 15. So we're reading what is called the Jerusalem council. This is Acts 15, beginning at verse 1. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, I think we'll pause there. That really sets the stage for the council, the discussion, the debate that takes place beginning in verse six. So Pastor Andrews Just this this matter of circumcision, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses in verse five, it's necessary to circumcise them. Uh, What's the big deal with circumcision? Why is this such a a flashpoint in Acts chapter 15?
1: Circumcision, let me phrase it this way. Circumcision is to Judaism as baptism is to Christianity. That might, we might have to unpack that. But the idea of circumcision was it was the entry point into God's Old Testament or his old covenant that he had made. So Abraham receives the covenant from Yahweh in Genesis chapter 15, that essentially God will be his God. He will be God's people and that he's going to become a great nation. His nation will, and his descendants, his offspring will end up blessing the entire earth. And in Genesis 17, Yahweh gives him circumcision as the the sign of that covenant. So to be circumcised this is always a fun one and whenever i mention the word circumcision in a sermon just i can see the people's faces change they like grimace out in the out in the pews (laughs) Um, nobody wants to talk about it but it's it's such a prevalent old testament thing i mean it's huge the idea of of god's mark on your flesh that reminds you who you are um I like to think about it in the same way of even the name change that Abraham receives. So Abraham's name is not Abraham. His name was Abram, which I believe in Hebrew means exalted father. And then because he and Sarah or Sarai still at the time have been wrestling with God's promise that in their old age, they would have a son they haven't trusted. And so in Genesis 16, they tried to take matters into their own hands and you end up with him marrying Hagar, the servant and having a son, Ishmael. God has to reiterate to them that he's going to keep his promise. And so he changes their name. Abram becomes Abraham, which means father of many nations. From that day forward, when anyone addressed him, when anyone said Abraham, even if it was as simple as, hey, Abraham, how are you? It's a reminder to him of who God is and what God is doing for him. As it was for Sarah, I, my understanding is her name change didn't actually change the meaning of her name, Sarai to Sarah, uh, same Hebrew word of princess, uh, but again, the same point being made, the different sound of a name is going to be a daily reminder for her. And so is circumcision. As you are circumcised, you're, you're brought into the covenant, it's a daily reminder as every time you take a bath or every time you use the restroom or every time that you would have sex with your wife. Any of these things are going to be that reminder to you of the old covenant of who God is and what that promise is and means for you. And so the Jewish people, they're not always faithful in it, Hmm. but this is, again, this is the entry point and it's, it's a big deal for them.
0: Hmm. So, I mean, it would be unthinkable for a Jewish person to, to, to not have circumcision, I mean to to be to be faithful to God in their own mind, to be faithful to God and not be circumcised. Those two things are just incompatible. I mean, that's the that's a, and that's where I think your your comparison to to what Christian is or what baptism is to Christians. It's, it's when we think about what does it mean to be a Christian. I'm going to be baptized according to God's promise. It's, it's unthinkable for us to reject baptism. Similarly, for these these Jews, it would have been unthinkable for someone to reject circumcision and still claim to be faithful to God.
1: Right, and I use the the baptism to Christianity referent because as circumcision was the entry into the old covenant, we do usually view baptism as the entry into the new covenant. That to be a Christian today is to be baptized and that the way many of many of the faithful today have become Christian was even as children when their parents brought them forward to the font and the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them in the water of baptism.
0: So for for those who have come down from Judea to Antioch, and then later those who are there in Jerusalem talking about the necessity of circumcision, what's the what's the theology that's at stake here? Why, why is this a, a theological, I mean, it's going to cause dissension and debate even there in Antioch before it goes to Jerusalem. What's the, what's at stake here? Well, it'll
1: cause dissension and debate in Jerusalem too. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, for us, everything's at stake. The idea of, okay, faith or works, how are we saved? And, and, Paul's going to unpack this so many different times. If you read through his epistles, it's it's in many of them. I don't know that I can say off the top of my head for certain that it's in all of them, but it might yet be. Um, so if, if it depends on my works, if my salvation is dependent on me doing something that does take away from Christ, it makes... What Jesus did on the cross no longer sufficient. Jesus did a good work for me, but I have to add to it. That's the that's what it ultimately comes to. And when you have that, when it depends on man's works, my works are never certain. My works never have that comfort with them to know that I've done enough work. The challenge come, creeps in and the devil will use that as a foothold to to bring doubt to my faith. And so that 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 spot where they're trying where works
0: are trying to be imported into Christianity here is particularly through circumcision. And then by extension, the custom of Moses. So this this would include other matters of of keeping the law. And again, as you point out, that shows up in many of Paul's epistles, if not all of them, these these matters, and it usually focuses around the matter of circumcision, which is what it what is in view here, particularly in Acts 15. So there's dissension, there's debate there in Antioch. Uh, Nothing is settled there. And and you can imagine why Antioch would be particularly a a hotbed for this debate if you've got these people from Judea who are claiming you had to be circumcised in Antioch, which has become a, a center for particularly for Gentile Christians. It's not that there are no Jewish Christians there, but that's really where things got going with Gentile Christianity in the book of Acts. That's going to cause some problems in Antioch. And so, as you mentioned, this is now the impetus for sending to Jerusalem. So, uh, take us into the journey, because we do get a little bit of that information. The journey that is taken by Paul and Barnabas and others with them who go to Jerusalem to engage the question there. Sure. So,
1: this... this delegation uh, is, has been sent yeah. to go to Jerusalem. And they we read in verse 3 that they're going to pass through Phoenicia and Samaria. And so here, those are both, we would talk about them as being regions. Antioch is located in Syria, which is roughly 300 miles to the north of Jerusalem. So from Antioch, you're traveling south. And as you're traveling, you would go from Syria into Phoenicia then into Samaria, and then you would finally come down into Judea, where you would find the city of Jerusalem. And so they're they're traveling and they're going from one place to another as they they go, they're telling Gentiles about Jesus, I would assume, but also it sounds like from verse three, they're they they're relaying the accounts of the Gentiles becoming Christian also to the Jews, which is bringing great joy to the brothers. That is the believers in Christ, this one body, this one family that we are as the church. And these brothers are, they're rejoicing that the kingdom of God has, has been expanded so greatly. Hmm.
0: You know, I I think from a, from a human perspective, you might read something like verses, especially verse three is almost like, you know, Paul and Barnabas are campaigning for their side or something like that. And and I, I, that's not what's going on. This is really Paul and Barnabas have this great joy. That the gentiles are being brought to christ and that great joy is being shared by the churches that hear it along the way and uh, far from a some sort of political campaigning hey you know be on our side for this coming council this is simply the the joy of fellow christians i mean sharing i mean this is the like this is the party of luke 15 where the sons come back and everybody's rejoicing that hey we're all in the father's house together let's celebrate, let's have this great joy. I mean, just to, you know, before you even get to the the actual council and what's decided there, you can you kind of see how this is gonna play out, I think, because you see this joy that is being shared by churches along the way because of these Gentiles who have been brought to faith. It's, it's a really, you know, it's small details there, but there's a lot, I think, to that brings us joy as well.
1: Right, I imagine hearing, so you can imagine a community where you live, uh, wherever it is you're listening from today, and, and there's a town nearby that hasn't had a church, and then all of a sudden you hear, oh, there's a church in that town now. The reaction would be a reaction of joy and thanksgiving. So, hey, there's a church in Galatia now. Oh, praise the Lord. There's a church in Lystra now, in Iconium. Thanks be to God. Uh, the, the church growing and, and going out into, well, all the nations, all the, all the earth. Hmm. Now in verse
0: four, Paul and Barnabas and the, the whole delegation that's with them they get there to Jerusalem. They're welcomed. And they're welcomed, it says, by the church, the apostles, and the elders. And, and we're going to see these groups mentioned at various points here in Acts 15. Who, and I think this is important so we have a, a at least a, as close as we can, a good conception of who's at this council, who's participating in the discussion. But what's being talked about, the church, the apostles, the
1: elders? The word church is everyone. So the the idea of the church in Jerusalem which I think by our definition in numbers today we'd probably call a mega church with the explosive yeah. growth that they had on Pentecost and three thousand baptized and the Lord kept adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. But the so the word church is just what we would, might look at as the laity of the church. And the apostles are primarily those who had been the twelve disciples of Jesus. Um, although the New Testament never truly defines like the qualifications of the apostle, it seems to be someone who has seen the risen Christ and been commissioned by Jesus directly to go out into the world. So our list of apostles is usually only in the teens, rather than some other church bodies might even call people today apostles. And then this word "elders" is likely akin to what we would talk about as pastors. So when Timothy or Titus those two letters from Paul have the qualifications for elders we we usually look at them as pastors in that context
0: so this is the group then that welcomes the delegation from Antioch they they're all they're being welcomed. They declare what God has done to this group. Verse five brings up this controversy yet again. And it's this is interesting as to who is bringing up the controversy. Luke writes, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up. And we've talked about what the controversy is. It's necessary to circumcise them. But, but who are these people? Believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees? Who, who are we talking about here?
1: So, we're used to hearing about the Pharisees in the gospel accounts, these men who opposed Jesus and opposed his teaching about the coming of the kingdom of God. Uh, They're a group of Jews, uh, and they have their own political leanings and so forth, and their own even theological leanings. But it's not just in the gospels. The Pharisees don't just disappear when Jesus is crucified. Thankfully, some of them actually believed in Jesus. We can name Nicodemus for certain, as the Gospels do identify Nicodemus as being a Pharisee. And then perhaps Joseph of Arimathea, he's identified as having been on the the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, which had both Pharisees and Sadducees on it. So he may have been a Pharisee. But this group of Pharisees, to use some of Jesus' language, they had trouble separating new wine from old wineskins what is that language of Jesus just give us a a reminder yeah it's Matthew chapter 9 I'll just read the verses 14 to 17 quickly here the disciples of John came to him saying why do we and the Pharisees fast but your disciples do not fast and Jesus said to them can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. So Jesus, essentially, with those, those pictures of the cloth or the wine, is warning against trying to take the old covenant and the Jewish customs and make those things fit with the new covenant that he makes with us. Essentially trying to mix the two, trying to use all those old Jewish laws with this new faith in Jesus would only serve to destroy that new faith, that new wine that he has given.
0: Mm. So I think I love this verse because you do find out that some of the Pharisees are now believers, which is a fantastic thing. And and at this point too, I mean you mentioned both Nicodemus, potentially Joseph of Arimathea, we do know that that Paul was a Pharisee too. So to to see sure. those who had been Jesus opponents that now be believers, this is no small matter for joy. And and yet they still have some learning that needs to happen. And and of those who would have had the most trouble, with the, the old wine and new wine skins and, and the pieces of cloth, the Pharisees would stand out as those who would have this struggle. And so, I mean, I, I think we should keep that in mind here as we read through what happens with the Jerusalem council, that even as as those who begin to insist on circumcision, particularly after this become sort of the, The bad guys in in many of Paul's epistles, we should recognize that there are those who legitimately struggle with how this works. The the Pharisees, I think, would be chief among those. And and so to to see how the church does come together to answer this question on the basis of God's word for the sake of these very believers, I think is is important for us to see. So we pick up the text again. We are in Acts 15, verse 6 now. that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. That's where our text ends today. That takes us through Acts 15, verse 21. So the council meets, that's verse 6. You have the apostles and elders who are gathered for this matter. There's more debate here. And then Peter stands up. Begin to take us into what Peter does when he stands up and speaks.
1: This again displays to us Peter's role in the church. As we think of Peter and the disciples in the gospel days, uh, the accounts of gospel and, and Jesus' ministry, Peter was always that bold one among them, first to open his mouth, also first to have to put his foot in his mouth. Uh, right. so, but Peter has that role. He has that leadership uh, about him. And so as he stands up that day in the Jerusalem council, that has authority to it. The people recognize him and they, they let him speak and, and they give ear to what he says. And we see that even at the end uh, as his speech is concluded they fell silent they they heard what he said they had again that respect for it and it opens the doors for paul and barnabas to again speak and to share what they have been doing and what god has been doing through them in his kingdom
0: Yeah. So I, I think it makes sense from a human perspective and, and just from the way the narrative goes that Simon is the one who's, or Simon Peter is the first one we hear from. And Luke records his words for us here in, in verses seven through 11. He's really been the one who's taken center stage in terms of human actors in the first part of the book of Acts. And then we see following him, Paul, and that's also true here at the Jerusalem council. And then we'll, we'll talk also about James when we when we get there toward the end of of this so peter's the one who stands up and and he talks about the early days in the early days just a, as a way of reminder before we go to break here pastor andrews what's the what's the timeline we're talking about the jerusalem council no little time was was mentioned at the end of chapter 14 about about when are we
1: in terms of history that's often hard to track as you move through the book of acts because there aren't a lot of time indicators uh, that that just clearly identify where you are on, on the timeline. So, the Jerusalem council, I think, typically is agreed is in roughly 49 AD. And that moment where Peter is referencing the early days that God made a choice among them is back to chapters 10 and 11. And the idea of Cornelius and the vision he had of the animals, uh, we can cover that perhaps after the break. Uh, but that's maybe 36 AD at the earliest, could be a few years later than that. So we've seen between chapter 10 and 15 before this council, 10 years, 12 years pass, something in that timeline. Hmm.
0: Yeah, so so 10 years ago, Peter refers to those, those things that happened and that's going to provide the background for what he says and we will pick that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, we're talking Acts 15. With Pastor Steve Andrews, we'll be right back. Please stick around. Back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, June 3rd. We're studying Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 21 with Pastor Steve Andrews. He serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lees Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, prior to the break, we were talking about what Peter says, and he speaks up first at the Jerusalem Council. Again, this is about 10-ish years after his vision that leads to him going to preaching to Cornelius, which leads to the conversion of the Gentiles there in Cornelius' house. And, and that's what Peter is referring to when he begins his speech here at the Jerusalem Council. What does he bring up? How does he make use of, of what happened back in Acts 10 and 11? How does he make use of it here at the Jerusalem Council?
1: We see it start there in verse 7. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And so God has chosen to to use Peter. You know, the, the reason God chooses Peter is not given to us back in Acts chapter 10, but he chose Peter to take the good news to an, another group of people. And I think helpful to just quickly reflect, Peter sees that vision of animals coming down on a sheet from heaven, and the Lord instructs him to rise, kill, and eat, and Peter argues back that he, nothing unclean has ever touched his lips, to which God says that what he has called clean, Peter should not call common or unclean. So, common, unclean and clean, we see the parallel there. Common is opposite of holy. So, something common, like you think of whatever you might grab um, to, to eat a meal, So your utensils or whatever you might use, the cup to drink from, those are common. Whereas something that is holy, set apart, is used for service in the Lord's house, the Old Testament tabernacle or or temple. And so Peter's learning this lesson from the Lord, but he also is going to learn very quickly, as he has those guests from Cornelius' house that are at the door as his vision ends, that he is not only to think this way about food, As Mark 7 verse 19 also indicates, Jesus had made all food clean. But he's to think this way about people, that he's not to view the Gentiles as common or to view them as unclean, but rather to see them as those that Jesus died on the cross for, that they are ones who need to hear the gospel just as much as the Jewish brothers are ones who needed to hear the gospel at that same time. And so, Peter goes with those servants to Cornelius' house. He preaches the gospel there. They are suddenly filled with the Holy Spirit and baptized, added into the the kingdom of God that very day. So, Peter does that in chapter 10. And then chapter 11, Luke records it for us again as Peter had to basically defend himself. Just as we're seeing with this council idea for Paul, Peter has to defend his actions to that, that same early church. So, we see then in verse 8 that God knows the heart. He bore witness to them, gave them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And that was how that Acts 11 section concluded, that Peter, after giving the report, said, if God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, which we see them do in this text Mm -hmm. too. And they glorified God saying, then to the gentiles also god has granted repentance that leads to life so it is it's the holy spirit who gives faith who creates faith and it is the holy spirit's decision to create faith also in the hearts of gentiles and i know for one that i am forever grateful that because i'm a gentile uh, and i'm i rejoice that paradise's doors have been opened to me through the blood of christ
0: Uh, Peter's argument in verse eight sounds very familiar, uh, almost exactly what he says in in Acts chapter 11, but with different words, essentially that the reason the Gentiles are included in the church, uh, this is God's idea this was god's idea he's the one that that commanded it and so who are we to stand in the way it seems like he's reminding the jerusalem council of and, and perhaps some of these very people heard his speech back in acts chapter 11 reminding them here and then into verse 9 that god makes no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith that that language of cleansing their hearts I think it's a reminder of what, what you were saying about the vision that he received. While there is something to it about the, what you can and can't eat, even more than that, it's a matter of how does God bring people to faith? It's, it's the same for Jews and Gentiles. There's not a distinction there. They're both saved
1: through faith in Christ. They have washed their, blood, their robes white in the blood of the lamb, uh, to use a little revelation language in that, right? Baptism, baptism cleanses us. Uh, it is the washing of of water in the Word that removes that, well, drowns that sinful nature, that old Adam within us.
0: As Peter continues here in Acts fifteen in verses ten and eleven, he draws his conclusion. Now, therefore. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples, one that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear? what What is Peter saying as he draws his
1: conclusion in verses ten and eleven? I just had this in Bible class uh, a couple weekends ago where i I was able to put a picture of an ox with a yoke on it up on the screen to help mm. people visualize this. We can't quite do that with <laughs> with the sharper iron show, but it's helpful to recognize what a yoke is because it's a word scripture uses often enough. And it's an illustration that unless you grew up on a farm and had that kind of a lifestyle, and even farming today doesn't often have this, um, it's one that we just don't see. So, the idea of a yoke, if you can picture the ox that is pulling a plow, or if you can picture the horse that's pulling a wagon or a cart, the the yoke is essentially that harness that has been placed upon its shoulders um, and, and over its neck. And so, the, the idea that this yoke has been placed upon, well, in this case, they're placing, the people are placing the yoke on this new convert. The yoke here is the law of God, this, this burden that Peter acknowledges has crushed all of us. None of us kept it. This is what Paul says in Romans 3. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, O oh Pharisees. If you could not do this, if you could not keep the law, and so Jesus had to come and die for you because you failed to do this, why would you take that yoke that was no good for you and suddenly throw it on this new person? Why, why make them obey the very thing that was what killed you?
0: Yeah, I mean, what, and what a, what a powerful argument there that, look, we weren't able to do this. We weren't saved by circumcision. We weren't saved by keeping the law. And if, if we couldn't do it, why would we expect anyone else to be able to do it? And and that's not the point anyways. And he really, I mean, verse 11, so, so much of the book of Acts, you know, it, it tells a narrative. It doesn't necessarily give specific theology like you get, say, in the in the book of, or in the epistles of Paul, where, where he says, you know, this is exactly what you believe. So much of the book of Acts works by way of narrative, where you find out what was preached or you find out what they did. But here, Acts 15, 11, like this is, this is straight up doctrine. This is, this is what we teach. If, if there's a verse to memorize in the book of Acts, this is one of them.
1: Right. We believe we will be saved through grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So we First here, Peter's still making a distinction, even though there is no distinction, that would be Galatians 3.28, there is no distinction between Jew nor Greek. But here Peter is saying, we will be saved by grace, so Peter, the Pharisees, the others that are Jewish in their origin, just as they will, that they is now these Gentile, these new converts, whether they're in Antioch or Galatia or wherever they might be, can we just I don't know. Can we just quote from Ephesians 2 here? (laughs) I mean, Ephesians 2, we often, we've got the Lutheran verse uh, later in the chapter, but we miss the beginning sometimes where Paul mentions the idea that we were dead in our trespasses. So these, Mm -hmm. that brings the question can dead men do anything? Can dead men do good works? Can dead men save themselves? Can they raise themselves from the dead? And the answer to those questions, obviously, is a no. And yet, it is the—it's one of the greatest false teachings that the church has wrestled with, not just in the Jerusalem Council, but we continue to wrestle with it even in this day today. As it's always, again, I use that phrase: Jesus and Jesus and my works. Uh, this idea that we have to somehow do something we have to help God achieve this salvation for us but it's why Paul wrote what we then call that Lutheran verse for by grace you have been saved through faith this is not your own doing it is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast mm-hmm. yeah and so Peter echoes that
0: or or maybe Peter uh, Peter probably said this before Paul actually wrote those words to the Ephesians I'd agree so the same thing yeah yeah yeah. The, the same thing. What Paul wrote to the Ephesians, Peter proclaims here at the Jerusalem council. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. It is what the church is always taught and what the church continues to teach. Now that verse 11 ends Peter's speech. Everybody's silent. You mentioned that's the same thing that happened in, in Acts chapter 11. Now it's Barnabas's and Paul's turn. What do they,
1: that we don't get their words recorded, but what do they speak up to say? Yeah, I guess as Luke is recording this, he's given us enough of Paul and Barnabas already, so he just kind of rolls past this. But essentially, it's Peter's speech that silences the room so that Paul and Barnabas are able to get up and and really share everything from that first missionary journey. What has God been doing through them in Asia Minor? How they had gone to those synagogues, how Gentiles were being baptized and were coming to know who Christ is and and the good news of salvation that comes through Christ alone.
0: So they give that same testimony that they had given all along the way from Antioch to Jerusalem. They say, this is what God has been doing through the Gentiles. After they have finished, then James stands up. And before we look at what James speaks, because it is the rest of the rest of our section is what James says. Who is this James? Because there's several James in the New Testament.
1: Who is this one? There are. You've got those disciples, James the greater and James the lesser. Here we have this would be James, the brother of Jesus. So, for for the gospel accounts, we think of Mark chapter three that mentions that Jesus has brothers. Um, I'm going to mess up the names. I think James and Joseph, and I think there's a Simon among them. But anyway, if there's four of them that are mentioned, uh, and and there's nothing indicating that these brothers had faith. In the early days when Jesus was doing his ministry, and Mark 3 even kind of makes that clear the idea that they had thought Jesus had lost his mind and they were trying to hide him from the crowds because they didn't want him teaching any longer. But in the resurrection, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul will very specifically highlight the idea that Jesus appears, raised from the dead, Jesus appears to his brother James. And so, James, in, in the church's history and tradition, James goes on to become a, a, a great man of faith who who leads that church in the city of Jerusalem. And so, he's the one we have speaking here. So, what does this James, what does he begin to say? Well, he calls their attention and then he, he recounts what's already happened. So, he's going to build off of what Peter has said. He calls him Simeon in verse 14, and I don't want anyone to trip over that. Uh, Simeon is the Hebrew version of the name, and essentially Simon would be the Greek version of the name. So, if you ever have traveled to another place or heard someone in another language refer to you, uh, names vary as you go about in this world. And so, it, so it was then uh, that the Jews who sought to be Hellenized, that is the Jews that wanted to, to keep their Jewish faith, but to learn the Greek language and to take on Greek culture, that they would have hellenized some of their names as well so simeon becomes simon and as we know him also as peter and cephas and he's got a lot of names in the new testament doesn't he that's right this is that same man so james is building off of that same account from peter that we've just read in the text and he's going to launch from that account and point to how this is nothing new but this actually comes from a prophecy well the prophecies of the old testament and he gives us then in verses 16 through 18 of Acts chapter 15, uh, a quotation of Amos chapter nine, verses 11 and 12, which are about the prophecy of God restoring the nation of Israel. And that chapter started with the idea that they would be punished and then it goes into restoration. That's
0: right. the, the whole book of Amos up to that point is, is the Lord bringing his judgment upon his people. And it's really not until you get to these verses that James quotes that you get what you might call very explicit gospel in the book of Amos. So, what, I mean, how does James make use of these verses? What What are these verses saying from Amos 9
1: that that apply to the situation in Acts chapter 15? So, after this, I will return. That would be after the judgment, after the punishment, the doom and the gloom of the book of Amos. God would return. He would come back to his people. He would rebuild build. Here we would take that word tent and probably replace it in our own mind as, as the word house. But you can think of the house of David, that kind of language is common in scripture, uh, being his family tree. So, that the house of David, the tent of David has fallen, but God is going to rebuild it. He's going to restore it. This is a reference then to the, the promise that God made to david king david of israel in second samuel chapter seven that one of david's descendants one of his offspring his sons would sit on his throne forever we know that to be a messianic promise that points us forward to jesus christ himself but in the nearest fulfillment of that for amos's day they might point to the idea that as they are conquered as babylon took them into exile God would raise up the Persians and he would work through King Cyrus to defeat Babylon and then set the Judaites free, that they were able to return home. They were able to go back to Judah and rebuild it. Cyrus was even willing to pay the money to help rebuild Yahweh's temple there. But we, again, we know that these promises point us forward to something greater because in that rebuilding, there is no son of David that sits on the throne. Cyrus remained their king. And then when Persia fell, uh, the king of Greece was their king. And when Greece fell, uh, the Roman emperor was their king and so forth. It is, it is only in Christ that that prophecy gets its greatest fulfillment, which is what we see in the triumphal entry in Mark 11, as the people declare blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David, Hosanna, in the highest. Hmm.
0: Hmm. It, it's striking to see how David figures prominently here in the text that James quotes from Amos 9, and how that that same thought of Jesus being the son of David or the offspring of David was both was prominent both for Peter in his Pentecost sermon and for Paul in Acts chapter 13 and the sermon that he preached at Pisidian Antioch. In both of those places, Jesus being the one who fulfills the promise of David was a, a key thing. And it, it is here again, as James brings up this text from Amos chapter 9, and, and now the thing that James makes explicit, I think, and this takes us in the verse 17, is that what the Lord did through the son of David, Jesus Christ, is not just for the offspring of Abraham, according to the flesh, but it's for even Gentiles who share that faith.
1: Right. And this is something that this comes out of Isaiah chapter 49, verse six, as God is, is prophesying about as he's speaking about this Messiah, this Jesus that would come. He said there already, And it doesn't get any clearer than this in the Old Testament, I don't think. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And so, Jesus, we think about in Acts chapter 1, right before he ascends up into heaven, what does he say? He tells his disciples that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, all of those being the preserved of Israel and to the ends of the earth. That original promise of the Old Testament that God had made to Abraham was that in his offspring, that's a singular word, his offspring, one, Jesus, all of the nations of this earth would be blessed. That's a promise in Genesis 17, verse 20. You see it again to Abraham spoken in 22, uh, verse 18. And so, throughout your Old Testament, there are Gentiles, throughout history, there are Gentiles who saw the promise of their Savior, and they placed their hope in this Savior. Even though, uh, just like the Jews of the Old Testament, they hadn't met him, they still trusted. People ask that question from time to time. What what happened to the people that believed in the Old Testament? As, As we look back on the cross, they looked forward to the cross. Uh, their, their salvation comes from the same place ours does, from faith in Christ. Uh, so you can think of the Egyptians who left, Israel, left Egypt with Israel in the Exodus. You can think about how the Old Testament has numerous laws about how they were supposed to treat the sojourners, that is, the, the foreigners who came among them. There were even laws about if the sojourner wants to partake of the festivals of Yahweh, that is, to have faith and believe in, in God, he has to be circumcised. So I guess that gets us full circle here, doesn't it? Um, We have names of some of these people. And and I I think most notably the names of the women that show up in the, Mm -hmm. the genealogy of Jesus, Rahab and Ruth. And then Mm -hmm. Bathsheba doesn't get mentioned by name, but she's mentioned, um, I think through her husband, Uriah.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, those are, those are all very notable Gentiles who share the faith of the people of God in the Old Testament. And now James says, this is the same thing. And what I love about this is that it does, it is a reminder that the council in Jerusalem wasn't just a bunch of, I mean, they weren't just debating like, okay, what do you want to do? This was a a discussion. What has God told us to do? Let's do that. They base this decision that they make on the word of God. And so having now heard from Simon, Peter, from Barnabas and Paul, and finally from James, James as the one who is, as you said, the head of the Jerusalem church, he's the one then to speak the pronouncement. So he gives judgment in verse 19. And this is where we want to be careful here because they've been talking all along. Do you have to be circumcised? They're going to say no, but, but James says, well, no, you don't have to be circumcised, but you should do these things. I mean, what's, what happens in verses 19 through 21 with, and this will turn into the letter that we'll look at in the next show. What What's going on here where they say, okay, no, you don't have to be circumcised, but here's some things we do want you to do. What What's happening
1: here? It's a good question. And I think there's, there's some debate even amongst Christians today about what exactly is going on in these verses. So here's the decision. Here's the council's decision. James declaring that uh, decision to them. The church is not going to place a burden, a yoke, upon Christians in general, let alone upon these Gentiles who convert to Christianity that didn't grow up with the Old Testament. They they don't have that same beginning and background to begin with. So, what is verse 20 saying? Why give them these four instructions to follow? I think there might be two helpful separate ways, distinct ways you could view these things. The first is the idea that the council is instructing the Gentiles to obey the first commandment, that we should have no other gods. And if if you don't do that, if you're going to say, well, I like this Jesus and what he taught, but I'm going to keep following Zeus or, or whoever they may have followed in, in the various cities, they had different gods. Was it Artemis that was so big in Ephesus, for example? Uh, I think so. Yeah. So these things get at that. Christianity is exclusive. Salvation comes from Christ alone. And so you see these four things. Abstain from the things polluted by idols. That would be the most obvious uh, connected to the first commandment as if something has been used to worship another God. It's probably good that Christians not be involved in whatever that thing is. Paul talks this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 about food that's been offered to an idol. We know it's just meat, and it is. that's all it is, but it might cause your brother to stumble if you partake of that meat that's been offered to a false god. And so, Paul even gets to the point of saying that if it would prevent his brother from stumbling, he would never eat meat again. Sexual immorality is on this list here, and we would often just jump to the sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery but there is a connection here in ancient religions to sexual immorality very common in the old testament but also still happening in the new testament era is this idea of temple prostitution so the the concept basically being that there are gods up in the cosmos somewhere and that they are looking down on us and if if things are a little dry, if there's been a barren stretch or you just want to pray for for an abundance of, of your crop and, and the fertileness of the ground, you'd go to your temple of your false god and there they would have prostitutes and you would pay money to the temple. You would engage in prostitution with the prostitute and that these false gods would observe your your sexual activity and they themselves would get active and give fertility to the creation, the land beneath them. So temple prostitution is a big deal throughout the Old Testament that God has to warn his people against. And so that would fit here. And then the last one, then, most commentators seem to lump the things strangled and and blood into being one and the same. But the importance there is, again, connections to the pagan rituals, the idea that as you sacrificed these Animals. What do you do with the blood? Oftentimes they drank it as a part of that ritual. There are uh, satanic cults that do the, the drinking of blood as some way of, of some, somehow taking power from the animal, the thing itself. And so you could see verse 20, all of these things as a reference to instructing the Gentiles to leave their false idols behind, leave behind the false gods that they worship. I appreciate that because I don't think
0: I've ever heard that one before, that, that way of looking at these four things as all being just for, first
1: commandment issues. What's the what's the other and perhaps a bit more common thought on this verse? The other one, and I, I found this as I was prepping um, in Linsky's commentary series, he talks about essentially the idea that you use adiaphora in love. So, there are things in the scriptures that are neither commanded nor forbidden of us, um, as we look at this list, I'm not sure we'd look at mo- many of these as offer, but th- the picture remains the same. Let not your Christian freedom become a stumbling block to your neighbor. And that's what we saw again with, with what I mentioned from First Corinthians 8, Paul saying he won't eat meat if it causes his brother to stumble. He's going to have a very similar discussion in Romans chapter 14 that for the sake of the weaker brother – we ought not to do things even if our, our Christian freedom would allow us to do them. I think that's the one that I've heard
0: most commonly when it comes to this passage. But again, I do appreciate that first one because I think that's, that's some good, good food for thought. And I really appreciate that. Pastor Andrews, we've got just about a minute here, help us to, to wrap things up. And, and with all the discussion you had, point us back to the, the central issue. What's at stake here with the Jerusalem council? Why is the decision it reaches so important?
1: So, as a whole the the purpose of the jerusalem council is to look at the idea of how are we saved is it by our faith or is it by our works do we have this faith in jesus that gives us salvation but then we have to do these other things in order to be saved and the council is going to come to the distinction here salvation is given by faith as peter so very boldly stated in his part of the speech there we do not have to merit our salvation it is not a good work it is not something we can earn it is a gift that jesus christ gives to us and so then what is said whichever way you take verse 20 here is that what is the work of the christian well essentially jesus telling us in the gospels numerous times to love god and love your neighbor if you're looking at verse 20 is abandon your false idols and that's the idea of loving God. If you're looking at it as using your Christian freedom to love and to serve your neighbor, well, that's loving your neighbor. So, either way, it fits with that purpose that the Lord himself has given to us that this life is about loving our neighbor, loving God and loving our neighbor. And salvation, salvation's is not dependent on what we do. We do these things because God has first loved us.
0: Pastor Steve Andrews is pastor at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri, helping us today with Acts 15, verses 1 to 21. Pastor Andrews, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you for the invitation. I am your host here on Sharp Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Acts 15, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.